Well, it's been a few decades now that the engineering sector in South Africa has been under a lot of pressure. It was uh, yeah, marked recently by news that my old hometown of Newcastle was going to lose its biggest employer, uh, ArcelorMittal, closing down most of the Newcastle mill. Uh, Gordon Angus is with the South African Engineers and Founders Association. So if anybody's been close to all of this, it's him. And I'm hoping that he can give us some insights today on this deindustrialization of a country which uh, prides itself on putting together some kind of an industrial policy, but one that doesn't appear to have worked. Gordon, good to be talking with you. Just give us a bit about your own background uh, so that people know who you are and uh, some background on what the South African Engineers and Founders Association is. Great. Thanks very much for having me, Adek. Um Yes, absolutely. I joined the industry in 2003. Um, so this being my 21st year, I've been involved in collective bargaining um, and industry-related matters for, for all of that time um, uh, in my capacity as an, uh, an official of various employer organizations. Um, the South African Engineers and Founders Association is one of the larger employer organizations specializing in the metal and engineering industry, and we represent our members um, at three levels, basically at company level, providing company level services, but perhaps more importantly for this interview, at industry level, engaging with um, our labor partners uh, in terms of setting terms and conditions of employment, wage rates, etc. So 2003 is a long time ago, uh, more than 20 years. How has the size or the scale of the sector changed over that period? Um, Interesting to uh, that question, Alec. I, I did some in preparation for the interview, some um, um, analysis on the employment uh, figures of the industry. Uh, what I did was I went back and looked at the um, annual general reports um, published by our industry's pension and provident funds. Now, it's important to understand that in the industry, all scheduled employees, which means all factory floor staff in the industry, um, are required by law to to contribute to pension or provident funds. So these are pretty accurate figures and they they, 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 they tell a, a very sad story, unfortunately. I've gone back to 2006. I wasn't able to get right the way back to 2003, but 2006 is uh, as far back as they've gone, at least on their website. And in 2006, um, the, the reports um, showed that there were 287,916 employees uh, employed in the industry. Uh, fast forward to 2023, the latest annual report shows us that there's now, unfortunately, only 228,823 employees. So that's a loss of 59,000, nearly 60,000 employees over that um, very, very long period, as you say. Well, I suppose it's not too much of a surprise to people who've been looking at the South African economy, but perhaps you can explain to us why you've seen this contraction. I think it's a case of... Um, the collective agreement that is negotiated in the, in, in, the, in the industry, providing for very, very high minimum wages, perhaps not the only reason, but certainly one of the main contributing factors. It must also just be said and, and borne in mind that, of course, the industry is incredibly diverse. We're talking about uh, the metal and engineering industries, bargaining council, covering all companies from you know the so-called Bob and Box Burgers, a small fabrication uh, enterprise, with a handful of employees, right up to the likes of ArcelorMittal, School Metals, and so on. Um, so, so, and, and and all of these companies, with 
barring the exception of a few companies that have house agreements, are all covered by the same collective agreement. And interestingly enough, the same terms and conditions of employment, including minimum wages. So the, the first problem that arises in, in such a setup is that um, the, the overall cost of labor for different companies is obviously different. You can have a small fabrication shop um, and your overall cost of employment can be as high as 40 to 45%. You can have other types of employers, for example, cable manufacturers who tend to run continuous processes and their cost of, of labor as an overall component of their business expenses is, you know, in some cases, even as little as 1%. Yet the minimum wage rates um, that are applicable are the same. So I think that's led over time to uh, an eroding of of the employment rate. Um, you know, if one if one considers that uh, that we've lost sixty thousand jobs since two thousand and six, if one were to calculate what it ought to have been, considering what the economic growth of the country is, for example, we should be closer to to four hundred and twenty four hundred and thirty thousand employees. So I think that's probably the main reason. Obviously, technological advances and so on. Uh, do play their role as well, but certainly, insofar as a barrier to entry for 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 smaller companies and and for for um um, um less skilled workers is the pro- prohibitively high minimum wage rate that's being set uh, in the collective bargaining forum. And what's happening at ArcelorMittal right now? Does that reflect part of this malaise? I think to a certain extent it does. We haven't really been involved too much at ArcelorMittal. Um, ArcelorMittal aren't a member of, of the South African Engineers and Founders Association, but it's certainly a problematic in terms of what the effect on, well, the knockout effect, should we call it, on on uh, manufacturers down, downstream, the terminology bandied about in the industry. Um, obviously, a loss of of um, that size to, to an entity that size or plants of that size is going to have a dramatic effect on companies that, um, are located close to and and are supplied by ArcelorMittal. And that's where our genuine concern in terms of our specific membership lies. So where is the solution? We've got an election on the 29th of May. There are going to be a whole bunch, one hopes, of new politicians who are going to be taking the decisions for the country. We're going into coalition politics for the first time where everyone's vote is, is just worth so much more because you might have the the power to put one different person into parliament who might make a difference. They, they will be listening, no doubt, the bright-eyed and bushy-tailed new MPs. How would you be advising them to turn this around and instead of having 200,000 people employed in the sector, get back to where it should be, the more natural number of double that? I think there's, there's, there's two points um, uh, that I would suggest uh, the, the bushy-tailed uh, look at. Um, and in no particular order, the first point of, of major concern, and this is a hot topic at the moment, given that the metal industry is um, and soon to be embarking on wage, wage talks this year, is the, um, the, the, the violence and the intimidation associated with, with industrial action. Unfortunately, it's been our experience that um, we've seen increasing levels of violence and intimidation each year that we've negotiated since our 2007. Um, and... Really, that is a big, big problem. I talk to members, obviously, on a daily basis, and they will often share with me that um, and their view very, very strongly is that their employees wouldn't participate in industrial action were it not for the violence and intimidation. Indeed, I think that a strike that turns violent is um, indicative of a strike that isn't going to be well um, um, supported. Because if you and I are, are, are workers at a, at a factory and we both want to embark on industrial action to exercise our 
our uh, and, and bargaining power on the employer, then there's no reason for, for us to intimidate one another. It's where we don't support the strike that I think that violence and intimidation creeps in. And there just doesn't seem to be any consequence suffered by people who break the law and break the rules during uh, wage negotiations. When in, in 2021, which was the last time the metal industry um, um, embarked on wage negotiations, there were very, very high levels of violence and intimidation, particularly on the east end of Johannesburg. That's, of course, where the concentration of metal and engineering industry is. Um, and yet very, very little uh, coverage in the news, very, very, and, and, and no consequences suffered by any of the guilty parties from what we could see. Um, so that's, that's something that obviously needs to change. There's got to be consequences for not following the law when embarking on industrial action. We have no problem with the right to strike, the right to industrial action, the employer's right to lock out. But it's the, it's the associated violence and intimidation that comes with that that is so problematic. Another area that is, um, increasingly found by our members to be problematic is the way that the Labor Relations Act, the current legislation, allows for the extension of collective agreements. We, we believe that it's deeply unfair. It considers only employee numbers uh, in, in considering whether the minister must extend a collective agreement. doesn't take into account uh, the representative parties of the employers, so employer numbers don't matter. And so what you can have as a consequence is a, is a situation arising where for example, in, a, in, a, in an industry of a million employees, and I'm using round figures because that's I did the, for the last time a long time ago at university, but in an industry of a million employees and let's say 10,000 employers, assuming that only 10 of those uh, employers, of those 10,000, yes, they may be big companies and they employ 1,000 employees each. If they are able to um, ex- uh, uh, reach an agreement with, 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 with labor in that particular industry, then the, the Minister of Labor can't exercise his or her discretion, but actually must extend that agreement to non-parties, even though the parties to the agreement may only be 10% of the employees in the industry and 0.1% of the employers in the industry. So I think the legislation needs to change to, to, to incorporate overall industry size and not just employer parties, uh, parties to um, employer organizations or party twos, parties to trade unions, respectively. I think if we can get that right, it would put a lot more power back in the hands of companies to determine their own destiny, um, particularly companies who have different drivers and different costs, perhaps located outside of major centers, much um, uh, much more spenders than uh, on transport, etc. And their, their, their pressures are different and a lot more power would then be put back in their hands to be able to determine their own future in terms of costs, particularly with regards to labor. You know, listening to you, I understand perhaps for the first time why so many people are so angry on social media about these kind of issues and and make allegations which are quite a conspiratory jump to say that big business and and big government are in bed together and they're just here to screw the small guy. Do your members feel the same way? Yeah, I think to a certain extent, you know, whether that's sort of how deliberate that is, you know, I think is debatable. But certainly there is an element of that. It's, it's, it, it really is no, there's no question in my mind that there's a lot more power in terms of the bargaining arrangements and the way the legislation is constructed um, that lies in the hands of big employers. Um, particularly if you give, um, um, if you, if you um, uh, consider that in any particular mandating process, the, 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 um, the voting power is just so skewed in, in favor of, and the ability to extend is just so skewed in favor of um, big companies who, who typically employ more employees. And again, the problem is that 
most of those companies, and perhaps this is a bit of a generalization, but most of those larger companies, their overall cost and uh, labor costs as a, as, as a, you know, compared to their total cost makeup would be comparatively small, much, much larger at smaller employees. So far more powerful in the collective bargaining context than, uh, than smaller companies. Are there any countries that have got this right? And I, I, I throw this at you because visiting Australia an, a number of times, it, it, it was quite marked when you went into a shopping center, for instance, that there were a heck of a lot of mom and pop shops rather than what we have here in South Africa, much more like the American system where it's, it's chain stores. And I, was, I asked a few of the landlords and they said, well, we have to. It's not a question of having to give a huge or a much bigger, a better deal to a big company because they take more space, but actually we have to extend what we charge them to the small guys as well. And I've had personal experience of this, so I was very aware of what they were saying. But are you, are you seeing other countries, perhaps Australia is an example, are there any others that are getting this right where they, they do stop this uh, collaboration between big business and big government? Because, in fact, uh, it doesn't take a rocket science to work, or a scientist to work out that they do have uh, – they, they can scratch each other's backs at, at times. Absolutely. I'd be hard-pressed to, to um, be able to pinpoint where that specific problem has been addressed or that specific challenge, call it what you will, has been, been addressed. But certainly there are many examples of countries around the world where there's far more collaboration in the sense of working with businesses, particularly small businesses, and making it easier for them to conduct business and to open up and to start trading and to start employing and to expand and so on. Um, and that has been that has obviously proven very very successful. The obvious example that comes to mind is Singapore, South Korea, etc. Um, where over the course of a, a few decades have completely changed the lives of their entire populations, moved from developing status to developed status. Um, but I think that's specifically because there's been a, a, a direct approach from government to work with business and to encourage um, um, business and to encourage employment and to to encourage companies opening up and expanding, et cetera. So we believe that's certainly the key. And the easiest way to do that, in our opinion, is just leave it to the business owners. The entrepreneurs know what to do. It's what they, you know, it's why they have started businesses. It's why they're trying to uh, put everything on the line to, to create employment, to create opportunities, and to, to, to make uh, money for the economy. They know what they're You're doing. You're putting your the, finger the, on the keys. Yeah. Sorry. You're putting yeah. your finger on something very important because there are two types of business leaders and two types of businesses. There are entrepreneurs who you've mentioned, many of whom are small businesses, and that's where the growth in employment comes from. And then there are professional managers who are there to make sure they make the maximum amount of profit, and they are usually retrenching. Uh, not always, but for the most part, they are reducing employment. So it's an interesting point that you make there, especially when we look at a, at a country like South Africa, where we have been through uh, enough uh, pain to get to the one man one vote situation where we we seem to be going in an opposite direction when it comes to the reality of it uh, because perhaps people interpret this word business uh, a little differently and not looking at a little further down that chain to see well what do you mean by business is it big business is it small business is it entrepreneurs is it professional managers and so on and again I'm getting back to your membership base. Why do they keep doing it, given there are 
so many, there's such a gale force wind coming at them from uh, in front. Yeah, uh, sure. Why, why they keep on doing it, uh, Alec? Um, I've asked myself the same question many, many times. Um, it's, it's, it's certainly very, very difficult. Um, and I, I do believe that entrepreneurs are a special breed. Their capacity to be able to overcome problems is, just seems to sort of know no parts. Um, but, but you know, I, I think that that if if one considers that we have the highest unemployment rate in the world from any country that tracks employment uh, uh, figures, it just seems crazy to me that we are are restricting more and more and more, despite what particular government uh, ministers may say, and particular plans, master plans, and so on might say, and. Um, and I think that needs to change. We need to be able to create some sort of capacity and some sort of environment for companies to start employing people on mass. We we come across companies daily. Um, our, our member companies um, will will often report to us that the employees that that they engage with that they employ um, will will report to them that they are responsible for extended families. It's very very rare that um, a, a, a a breadwinner in a metal and engineering industry company is only looking after him or herself. Uh, it's usually extended families. Um, and, and by that, we don't just mean, you know, we don't just mean children, normal dependents, if, if there's such a thing, but adult dependents as well. And it, it, it absolutely has to be that we've got to tackle this unemployment problem if we're going to see any kind of change um, or going to avert any kind of social um, upheaval in the long term um, if, that, if that unemployment, um, it, that escalation of unemployment is left um, unaddressed. So the best way to tackle this is not to have a conversation around what the very few existing employees are being paid, but rather to say, well, those employees already have jobs and nobody's suggesting for a moment that we cut people's wages or anything like that, but we create an environment where new employees can actually be employed. Because one thing is for certain that many uh, metal industry employers will not take on uh, unskilled employees simply to give them an opportunity and a foot in the door. They're simply too expensive and therefore would rather look towards mechanization or rather even look towards their existing employees who can already operate machines or drive forklifts or, or perform artisan work to do the more menial tasks themselves so that they don't then um, have that added cost of unskilled laborers, etc. The, the downside, of course, for labor is that you're denying an employee the opportunity of getting their foot in the door. And on, on the job learning, et cetera, is, is, is crucially important. Um, so it seems very, very sad and in, in, in actual fact counterintuitive that, um, that we create this environment where the, the actual entrant uh, or the, the entrant requirements for those employees to get their foot in the door um, are so, are so un, immeasurably high. The frustration of knowing the reality or the truth or the uber truth but then also seeing that it's ignored and not acknowledged is one that is throughout this South African economy. Maybe it's time, maybe after May the 29th, we'll start looking at what the true solutions are and stop just talking past each other. Good talking with Gordon Angus, giving us some insights. He's with the South African Engineers and Founders Association. I'm Alec Hogg from biznews.com. 